Well, we're joining with uh, Cody. Welcome, everybody. We're happy to be here and happy that you're able to be out and we just are trusting as we open the Bible. Important. Please open your Bible. Follow along and always encouraging that because that's our textbook. We are disciples of Christ. We are learners of Christ. And the only way we're going to learn is that we open our Bibles and follow along. I have the obligation to proclaim and to teach the scriptures, and you have the obligation to be sure that that's what I'm doing, because that's what we read about the noble Bereans. They checked out everything that Paul and Silas was teaching, and no, no problem there. That's, that's the way things ought to be. But happy to be here, and trust that our time will be profitable. We begin in the book of Job, Job chapter 31. Job chapter 31, we'll begin by just reading the first 12 verses, and what we have, Job, of course, was in this terrible affliction. These so-called friends came, and they were moralizing to him, and their basic thought was that piety pays and perversity punishes. And since Job was in the midst of a terrible time, he must be perverse. He's he got to be doing something wrong. And so here in chapter 31, it is called the oath of innocence, innocence of, uh, of Job. He says in verse 1, I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maiden? For what portion of God is there from above? And what inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is not destruction to the wicked and disaster to the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and count all my steps? If I walk with vanity or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in the even balance that God may know my integrity. Verse 7, if my steps has turned out of the way and my heart walked after my eyes and if any spot has cleaved my hands, then let me sow and let another eat. Yea, let my offspring be rooted out. If my heart has been deceived by a woman or if I have lied, uh, laid wait at the, my, my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let others bow down upon her. For this is a heinous crime. <clears throat> Yea, it is iniquity to be punished by the judges. For it is a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all my increase. In particular, verse 11 is our study. When Job talks about, about uh, that he had not committed adultery, he had not committed wrong, he is not unfaithful to his wife, his spouse, as you look at the context, because he says that such would be a heinous crime. Yea, it is iniquity to be punished by the judges. And those are the words of Job, a righteous man, a godly man, a God-fearing man. That is, he talks about immorality. It is a heinous crime, the sin of adultery. When you talk about heinous, the word heinous means outrageous. I did a search on the Internet, a dictionary, and you look at all the synonyms. And I mean, just throw out a few for the word heinous. Outrageous, atrocious, abhorrent, uh, disgraceful detestable, horrific. And so this is the way the Bible describes infidelity, a heinous crime. All right, so let's talk about some reasons why that infidelity is a heinous crime. First off, it violates the law of marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus was asked about divorce and is it lawful to put away your wife for every cause? And I want you to notice how Jesus reasoned because he goes way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 2. 
and gives his reasoning as he speaks about marriage. He says in verse 4, Have you not read that he, who, that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Therefore, they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. When you talk about the heinous crime of infidelity, it is a violation. It violates the law of marriage. Because Jesus talks about, as he refers back to the very beginning, that what God ordained about marriage was one man, one woman for life. That's easy, very easy to comprehend. I've taught classes with the little kids, and we go over that with little kids, and they understand it. One man, one woman for life. Not a man and a man, not a woman and a woman, not a man and two women, three women, not a woman and three or four men, but one man, one woman for life. That's what God ordained. That's what God says. There is a leaving of father and mother and a cleaving to your spouse. That shows permanency. They're no longer two, but they're one flesh. That shows permanency. They're not, one, uh, they're not two flesh. They are one flesh as they are joined together. God joins or yokes the couple together, the Bible teaches us here, and infidelity violates everything that God is describing, that Jesus is describing here, of what marriage is intended and what marriage ought to be. One man, one woman for life. The heinous crime of infidelity violates the law of marriage. There's also a breach of contract. There's treason through such things as infidelity. When two people get married, they promise to forsake all others and to cleave one to another as husband and wife, and to uh, make these sacred vows before witnesses. In the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, there in verse 4, it says, When you vow a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay that which you have vowed. Better is that you should not vow than that you should, uh, that you should vow and not pay. General concept. It applies to marriage. When two people come together to be joined as husband and wife, what is the sacred promise that they make? That they will forsake all others and be joined to this other person, and they say, I do. And what happens in infidelity? They're not doing it. They said, I do. They have made a breach of contract. You enter into the contract. Now, as the wise man says, better that you should not vow. Now, if you don't want to uh, be wed to one person and only be with this one person, just don't get married. Simple solution. Just don't get married. But if you're going to enter into this contract of marriage, we have the divine obligation to do what we say we do. If we say we do, we need to do it. You know, Jesus talks about oaths and the foolishness that people have in all these sliding scales of oaths. But Jesus says, But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever more than these, is, uh, these comes from evil. That is, we, me, we need to be men and women of integrity. If we say yes, then it needs to be yes. If we say no, it needs to be no. If we say I do, we need to do it. 
Don't say I do, and then don't do it, and enter into infidelity. It is a heinous crime, Job tells us, when you look at uh, infidelity. Another reason why infidelity is a heinous crime, it's grand larceny, it's theft. Consider what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of passion, even as the Gentiles who do not know God, that no man transgress and wrong his brother. Some translation says, defraud your brother. Take advantage of your brother. Because the Lord is avenger of all such, for we have forewarned and have testified. When people commit infidelity, it is, uh, they're, they're, it's, it's grand larceny. They're stealing. They're stealing from the honor of that union. They're stealing the trust of their mate. They are stealing the purity of the marriage bed. They're stealing uh, the self-respect that, that we need to have and, and uh, that, that we're doing things of dishonoring our body, which God says, don't do that. Hold your vessel in honor. That is, hold your body in sanctity. Not going out, taking and taking advantage of a situation. Another reason infidelity is a heinous crime is that it desecrates the temple of God. Our bodies are likened unto a temple. Sometimes the word temple refers to the physical temple, like in Jerusalem. Sometimes it refers to the local church. Sometimes it refers to the universal church. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it talks about our bodies. Paul says, what? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, whom you have of God, and, and you're not of your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore, God, therefore glorify God in your body, which in your... And in your spirits, which are God's. So when one commits infidelity, this heinous crime, it is a desecration of the temple of God, Paul tells us. And another reason why infidelity, adultery, is a heinous crime is that it is a sin against God. Go back there in Genesis chapter 39. You got a case where young Joseph was enticed by Mrs. Potiphar, enticing him to commit adultery. And notice how Joseph reasons with her in verse 9. He says, There is none greater in this house than I, neither has he kept back anything from me but you, because you're his wife. That would be logical. Then Joseph says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph recognized to be involved with this married woman, to be involved in adultery, is a sin against God. It was not the fear of conception. It was not the fear of infection. It was not the fear of detection that prevented him from involving in the heinous crime of adultery. It was the fear of the Lord. He did not want to sin against God. It is a horrendous sin against God. The heinous crime of adultery. Well, let's look at the consequences of this heinous crime. The Bible speaks at length about this. If you turn to the book of Proverbs chapter 5. Actually, when you study the book of Proverbs, chapters 5, chapter 6, 
and chapter 7 is really kind of a whole unit of teaching warning against immorality. That would be immorality in general. You want to talk about fornication, that is, uh, premarital sex, or whether you talk about extramarital sex, it, it's all transgression, it's all sin against God. And notice the, the beginning exhortation as Solomon reasons here in these passages and warns against this heinous crime of infidelity, of immorality. My son, be attentive to my wisdom and incline your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion and that uh, uh, your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drop as a honeycomb and her mouth is smoother than all. That is the enticement into wrongdoing, into immorality. He says in verse 4, but her end, her end. Oh, there's pleasures in sin. The Bible talks about that. I'm denying that. But in the end, it is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her, her steps take hold on shield. Lest you should ponder the paths of life, her ways are unstable that you cannot know them. Hear me now, therefore, O you children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her and come not near the door of her house. It applies both ways, both for men and for women, both for young men, young women. Don't, don't, bing, 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 bing. You know, this warning, 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 saying don't get involved in immorality. And there are terrible consequences that can follow. And so beginning in verse 9, let's notice the first one. In verse 9, it says, lest you give your honor unto others. And your ears, your years, your years unto the merciless. When one enters into infidelity, the heinous crime of adultery, you will lose reputation. It says you will uh, give your honor unto others and your years. See, it takes years to build a reputation of honor and integrity. And in a fleeting moment of time, you can throw all those years away in just one indiscretion. How often do we think about King David and, well, yeah, Bathsheba. After all these centuries, the topic of David comes up and invariably, you know, the thoughts of well, Bathsheba. Now, David was forgiven. Yeah, a person can be forgiven even of the heinous crime of infidelity. But the stigma has a way of staying with you. You throw away years of reputation. Proverbs 22 says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. That's how important reputation is, is to have a good name. And to guard that, it's, it's more valuable than silver and gold and dollars and, and uh, uh, cents. Yeah, a good name, Solomon said. Involve yourself in immorality? Yeah, you can lose your reputation. Look at verse 10. Let strangers be filled with your wealth, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. How many people who have committed the heinous crime of adultery and it ends the marriage and divorce? There is a high cost. Financially, it's a costly mistake financially to involve yourself in such things. And so he talks about that your strangers will be filled with your wealth. 
I mean, lawyers, they don't do it, uh, oh, what's that, uh, pro bono, that is free. It's costly to get a lawyer. You sell things. You usually don't get the price. You're wanting because you're just wanting to get out of this, out of this mess, and things are so, so often cheap. And you see how you lose your wealth? Continue on there in Proverbs chapter 5. Another consequence of this heinous crime, venereal diseases. And you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. So often you can get involved in immorality in the swinging lifestyle. And you pick up venereal diseases. It's like a cartoon I seen one time in a bulletin. This young boy is asking his grandfather, we live in the day of condoms and all that stuff. Granddad, what, what did you all use? He said, we used the wedding ring. <laughs> you be committed to your spouse. You don't have to worry about venereal disease. You get married and you stay with your one spouse. And you don't have to worry about being involved in picking up venereal diseases. That can wreak havoc to the human body. And there are plenty of them out there. Then notice what he goes on to say in Proverbs chapter 5. Ultimately, so often will happen is the utter remorse at the end. In verse 12, it says, And say, How have I hated instruction, and my heart despised reproof, and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined the ear to them that instructed me. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the congregation and the assembly. Well, what's his point? Well... You get involved in the heinous crime of infidelity. Teachers and preachers and elders and Bible class teachers, parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, warn about the heinous crime. Then we go headlong and bullheaded into doing wrong. And then we live those that time and then that all breaks up. And then where are you at? Well, you live in great remorse. Man, that, was, that was dumb. I made a bad decision. Why? Why did I do that? Why did I make these bad choices? Why didn't I just keep what I had? And the honorable relationship that I was in, yeah. Consequences come from bad choices. And let's go into the sixth chapter. The other things that are warned in the scriptures about the heinous crime of infidelity that are listed. And these, these passages list these things. Why? It's for our good. It's for our warning not to get involved in immorality. Notice there in verse 27. So is he that goes, uh, oh, excuse me, verse 27. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go up on hot coals and his feet not be burned? So is he that goes unto his neighbor's wife. Whosoever touches her shall not be innocent. First off, he uses the illustration. Could you imagine? Maybe you're, maybe you're camping. You're getting in the summer season. People like to camp. In the evening, especially in, in the spring, people like to build campfire. Could you imagine going over there, picking one of those coals of hot fire, and just drop it down in your shirt, in your jacket? I mean, you're going to be able to drop that, that puppy down there in, in your shirt, in your blouse, and, not, and your clothes don't get burned? No, it's not going to happen. It's going to burn your clothes. It's going to burn your skin. Or here's a campfire, and you just happen to walk over and just stand on those coals that are there. Is your feet not going to burn? Yeah, it's going to burn. 
There's, there's no getting around it. It's going to burn your feet, and it's going to hurt, and it's going to hurt like the dickens, and it's going to be terrible. Yeah, that's what he's saying. That's what the wise man is warning about infidelity, the heinous crime of adultery, is that it's like taking fire into your bosom, walking upon these hot coals. You're not going to be innocent. There, there is no excuse for such, such activity. You will not be innocent, the wise man said. You might dream, you might try to convince yourself, you might try to convince others that, that you were justified. It, it's, it's not going to fly. It's not going to work. And that's what the wise man tells us. Continue on in Proverbs chapter 6. Look at verse, uh, well, let me, uh, let me look at verse 32 there. It says, But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He that does it destroys his own soul. And again, it goes both ways. Whether it's the woman, whether it's the man, either one, you're going to destroy your own soul of leaving, forsaking your marriage vows, your sacred promises, forsaking all others. You say, I do, and you don't. You're destroying your soul. That's what the wise man said. It's a deadly sin. It's a horrible sin. It's a horrific, outrageous sin that is described in these passages. And these passages warn us and tell us about that. Oh, I don't know. Through the years I have read chapters 5, 6, and 7, 5, 6, and 7, 5, 6, and 7 of Proverbs. Don't go down that path of infidelity. It's, it's a bad path. That's what, that's what the wise man put these verses in here. To warn us not to head down that path. Look in verse 33. It says, A wound and a dishonor shall he get, as a reproach shall not be wiped away. So we're talking about King David. Was he forgiven? Yeah, he was forgiven. Of the heinous crime of adultery? He was forgiven. Read Psalm 32. Read Psalm 51. Yeah, he was forgiven. But the scar remained. That's what the wise man said. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. It just, it hangs with you. Yeah, you can be forgiven. It's kind of like driving nails in a post, a fence post. Can you get those nails out? Yeah, you can get the nails out. But once you pull the nails out, it's going to scar the wood. It will always be scarred. That's what the wise man's telling us about the heinous crime of infidelity. And then notice there, verse 34 and 35. For jealousy causes the rage of a man. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not regard any ransom, neither will he be appeased, though you give many gifts. Well, what's involved in that? That is jealousy will be inflamed. The jealousy of a husband, jealousy of a wife. Parents that are enraged of this heinous crime that has been that has been, uh, 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 been perpetrated upon this sacred institution called marriage. Yeah, it is a heinous crime. That's how the Bible describes infidelity. And then there's always the possibility of illegitimate children. And really, we say illegitimate children. It's not really the children. Children, children, children are innocent. I mean, it's an innocent baby. But it has and carries the stigma. But really, the ones that are illegitimate are the ones who are violating God's law. That, that's really maybe the more accurate way to describe it. It's illegitimate parents. That is, those who hop into the bed 
adultery. There's always that possibility. An innocent child would be brought in to a stigma. They didn't ask for it, it just came upon them. That sometimes happens. That's the nature of the world of sin, is that sometimes people do bad things and then innocent people bear the scars and bear the brunt on down the line. Yeah, consequences of this heinous crime, this atrocious, outrageous crime of infidelity. There are three repercussions described in the Bible for this heinous crime that are possible, that are talked about. First off, it is the only scriptural cause to divorce, to remarry, the innocent, the innocent party. In Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, Jesus asked, well, can you divorce for every cause? Is it lawful to divorce for every cause? They didn't ask, do men divorce for every cause? And the answer was, in the first century, yeah, people divorce for every cause. Now, do people divorce for every cause? Yeah, they do. But the question is, is it lawful? That is, is it right? The answer is, no, it's not right. And there's only one cause for a scriptural divorce, and that is the cause of fornication, of immorality. And I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery, and whoso marries her who is put away does commit adultery. Oh, how many people have violated God's law and are in bad relationships. Yeah, it can be a cause, the scripture calls for the innocent to put away the guilty for the cause of fornication. And then another repercussion that may come if repentance is not had, and that is be subject to church discipline. The Bible talks about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you have a man who had his father's wife. That is, he was involved with his stepmother in adultery. And Paul says it needs to be taken care of, not be puffed up, not to overlook it, not say, well, we're loving people. No, it had to be dealt with. The brother had not repented and was to be delivered unto Satan. In verse 9, he says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to company with fornicators, yet not entirely with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must you needs go out of the world. But now I've written unto you not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator, or a covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such a one though not leave. For what have I to do to judge them that are also, uh, to Judge them also that are outside. Do not you judge them that are within. But them that are on the outside, God judges. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. So what's the point? Can't worry about the people out in the world. God's going to take care of that. But if they're in the church and they're guilty of the heinous crime of infidelity, if there's no repentance, the church has the obligation to carry out the correct discipline that is described in this passage. It's like punishing a child for wrongdoing in the home. They had it coming. They brought it upon themselves. And so it is with those who are unfaithful to the Lord and refuse to repent. Can one repent? Absolutely. Can one be forgiven? Absolutely. Can one make amends and get it straight? Absolutely. But without repentance... That's what the Bible describes. There's a space to repent. Read Revelation chapter 2. And if in that space of repentance it's not found, then the church has the obligation to deal with it, as Paul describes in this text. And another repercussion of this heinous crime is that it will bring eternal condemnation. 
In the book of Revelation, chapter 21, in contrast to the holy city and those who are in the holy city, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the fornicators, that is the immoral, and the sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, uh, which is the second death. See, that's, that's the ultimate repercussion of the heinous crime of infidelity. It will bring eternal condemnation. Damnation. People are a little skittish about using the word damn and hell, but they are biblical terms and they're biblical concepts. And it's not we who pronounce damnation. It is God who pronounces and warns against it. And he will be the one that will be the ultimate judge. But the warnings are clear. We just cite what God warns about. And then look in Revelation chapter 22. It says, for outside, that is outside the holy city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the spiritual uh, body of Christ. For outside are dogs and sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and whosoever loves and makes a lie. That's the ultimate consequence, the ultimate, ultimate repercussion of the heinous crime of infidelity. If one does not repent of it, one does not turn from it, ultimately it leads to eternal condemnation. And then let's look over in John chapter 8 for just a moment where the Pharisees come dragging this woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery and they were not trying to determine what the law says and respect. It, was not, it wasn't a respect for the law. It wasn't, it wasn't a problem about her committing adultery. When they said, teacher, this woman, we have taken adultery in the very act. If, it were, if she was called an adulterer in the very act, where's the man? So that shows that uh, hypocrisy of these people. Moses said such should be stoned, and so it was. That's what the law taught. And, but they were just trying to accuse him, verse 6. And so Jesus says, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And he's right on the ground from the oldest to the youngest. They all leave. And then drop on down in the text there of John chapter 8. In verse 10, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those, your accusers? Has no man condemned you? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And there in verse 11, people have twisted what Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. To say that somehow that that adultery is not all that big a deal. That's not the point. When Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, that is, I do not condemn you judicially. That is, when he said, he that is without stone, let him cast the first stone, the only person there that could have cast the first stone, everybody else joined in, would have been Jesus. But Jesus didn't come to destroy. Jesus came to try to save. So judicially, Jesus did not condemn her. Morally, Morally, spiritually, yeah, she's still condemned. How do we know that? He says, go and sin no more. He acknowledges the sin of this woman who was taken in the very act of adultery. What she had done was a heinous crime against God. He called it just what it was. It was a sin. It wasn't, well, you know, a mishap. It wasn't a, an indiscretion. It wasn't, wasn't an affair. I mean, that's the common term you hear. Well, they had an affair. He just called it what it was. It was a sin. It was a sin against God. It was an, uh, a heinous crime against God. 
So when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. And she needed to repent. And I think in the situation, if you sort of think about it instead of human nature, she was given an opportunity, she could change. I would tend to think she probably seized on the moment to say, I was dead wrong. I mean, she could have walked away when all the other people walked away. She could have just walked away with him. She didn't. She just stood there. And she conversed with Jesus, and Jesus told her what she needed to hear. Go and sin no more. Yeah, you committed sin. He's, Jesus acknowledged she had committed the heinous crime of adultery, but gave her the window of opportunity to turn from it, to repent. There's the key. You've got to change. You can't, you can't live and keep going in the same lifestyle thing. Well, it'll all work out. No, it doesn't work out. It'll never work out. And we think that we'll just continue on in the same old, same old. Not going to happen. We have to turn from it if we fall into the trap. But I would hope as we study these passages that we would do like the proverbial saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I would hope that we would look at these exhortations, these warnings, these admonitions that are given in the scriptures that talk about the heinous crime of infidelity. And say, yeah, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I don't want to go down that road. That's just that's a dead end street. That's a bad road to get on. And say, no, I don't want to head down that way. I hope that's why we would take the lesson. We extend the invitation of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. God does have a plan of salvation. And it's going to involve repentance. In becoming a Christian or getting back when we are as a Christian, it's going to involve repentance. We're to hear this good news, the gospel. That's what the gospel means, good news. Good news is salvation in Christ. Just like when Jesus proclaimed to that adulterous woman there in Acts chapter 8, go and sin no more. Yeah, you're going to have to believe in Jesus. We're going to have to repent. We're going to have to listen to what Jesus says and turn from our wrongdoing, whatever the sin might be. Be willing to confess our faith before men and be baptized, immersed in water for mission. We can, we can be forgiven. We can, can all be washed away no matter what it might be. And then come up out of that water grave and grow and be faithful. Faithful, be thou faithful unto death. That's the exhortation of the scriptures. And if we do err, what? What are we told? As an erring child, yeah, we've got to repent. You've got to say, nah, I was wrong. I, I messed up. And come to God. Make it right. That, that's how you fix things. Is come back and make things right with God. We're going to sing this song your encouragement. If there's one that needs to respond to heaven's invitation, we can help. Come and let us know. While together we stand and as we sing.